yes, housekeeping, I forgot that. Those of you who didn't get the articles yesterday, there are more copies of the Testing Prayer Chapter 1, Calvin's Eucharistic Ecclesiology, and the Essential Writings of Christian Mysticism. There's all three of them there. You can pick that up either now or during the break. That would be fine. This morning, I get the opportunity, the privilege, to present on churchly and sacramental spirituality. I just kind of wanted to start by asking you if you've ever been in a church where you experienced, where they held very high sacramental views that you thought, you felt like you were stepping on holy ground, where it was just the Eucharist was treated with reverence and awe, or on the other extreme, were you ever in a church where it had extremely low views of the sacrament, and it felt like it was just commonplace, nothing special at all? Can anyone kind of share an experience of either one of those extremes? Yeah. They both happen at the same time here at ECC. Okay. Can expand on Diverse congregation. Diverse congregation coming at it with different vantage points and understandings. Okay. Fairly. Well, I Somebody said, oh, here's the rest of the communion bread. It wasn't anything special at all. We just, you know, yanked up on Okay. Finished it off. So that represents kind of a low... Totally low, yeah. Yeah. Special, nothing sacred. Okay. I had a similar experience when I was in college. I lived in Ireland for a while, for about, not a while, a semester of college. And I went to an Anglican church while I was there. And they had a very high view of the Eucharist. Okay. How did that impact you and how you participated? Well, I grew up in a, in a evangelical background where it wasn't treated with as much reverence. And so it made me really think about what um, communion meant in, in my practice personally okay. for the future. Yeah, great. Yeah, Beth. Take over. 
Yeah, Mark. Uh, in some respects, similar to, to what Beth just said, although maybe from a very different place, I spent a number of years among Plymouth Brethren, and Plymouth Brethren also celebrate the Lord's table, as they call it every week. And it's a separate service. That is the worship service. And you spend 45 minutes or an hour focused on the remembrance of the Lord at the Lord's table. That's the worship service. And then the, what we call the worship service, they call the teaching service. Okay. Um, so, but I would call that a high view, even though it was you know, sitting in folding chairs around a plain table. Sure. Yeah, maybe the ornateness of it doesn't necessarily betray a high view, and the simplicity of it doesn't necessarily betray a, a low view. But, yeah, Jane. Uh, I grew up in a Baptist church where everything was pretty much the same every week. And uh, <clears throat> when I was quite young, um, my grandmother and Vincent um, was caretaker for the Wellington Paris Mansion, so we would go around to the different buildings in Vincent's occasionally, and we went into the oldest Catholic church, and, and you had to cover your head. And it was dark, and there were candles all over the place. And I was just kind of awestruck. I thought, what is this? <laughs> it was just kind of odd. It was really sure. and It was kind of interesting. And I mean, kind of curious, you know. And then as you grow up, you learn a little bit more. But it was just a, such a different experience. Yeah. I, my initial experiences with communion were very much like Carolyn's. I uh, grew up in fundamentalist Baptist churches. My dad was actually the pastor. And uh, the church I remember most is the church in, in New York. Uh, and the communion bread was this really, it almost was like a cupcake kind of bread. It was really sweet, really moist. And I remember after the services, all the kids would flock to the front and dive into the communion bread. And my sister was one of those. She would always, you know, her and her friends would always be up there. And I remember even at, I'd say I was probably 12, 13, 14 years old, getting really mad at her. I couldn't have articulated why, but it just didn't seem right. I didn't have a high view of the sacraments. I wouldn't have even, at that point, called them a sacrament. And they were ordinances. They were just things we did. But it still seemed like it deserved more reverence than, than we were giving it. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about is an incredibly high view of the sacraments. And I wanted to start the discussion uh, with three... Three statements that are going to kind of serve as the outline for the whole, well, hour, hour ten uh, uh, that I have. Uh, the first, John Williams to Nevin. Dave asked me if Nevin was going to make an appearance. Yes. <laughs> uh, Christianity is grounded in the living union of the believer with the person of Christ. Another theologian, John Murray, said, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Okay? Uh, the second statement, again, Nevin. Uh, this is actually a maxim. It's not original with him, but he affirmed it wholeheartedly. No church, no Christianity. Uh, and the third, a little bit longer, uh, the question of the Eucharist is the most important belonging to the history of religion. Maybe a slight overstatement. Cut him some slack there. Uh, the mystery of Christianity is here concentrated into a single visible transaction. The Lord's Supper constitutes the most significant and impressive exhibition of the grace of the New Testament. Again, John Williamson Nevin from very important 
work of his, the mystical presence of Christ in the sack or in the supper. Along the same lines, listen to, to what John Calvin says. Uh, God has given another sacrament, in other words, in, in addition to baptism, to his church by the hand of his only begotten son, the spiritual feast at which Christ testifies that he himself is living bread on which our souls feed for a true and blessed immortality. Christ is the only food of our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Him, that refreshed by communion with Him, we may ever and ever gather new vigor until we reach the heavenly immortality. Okay, so these are the three main kind of uh, topics, points that I want to cover this morning. First, union with Christ as essential to understanding our salvation. Second, the church as essential to the Christian life. And third, the centrality. You see it saying central a lot, aren't I? Uh, the centrality of uh, the Eucharist to our growing union and uh, relationship with Christ. So, you've noticed this guy, John Williamson Nevin. Has anyone but Dave or Dr. Brown heard of John Williamson Nevin? Great. Okay, John Williamson Nevin is an obscure theologian. Uh, no, no doubt about it. He's obscure. Um, but we're going to look at these three topics through the lens of John Williamson Nevin this morning. Uh, he was born in 1803 in Shippensburg, uh, PA. Uh, as far as I know, he never made travels overseas. He never led big revival meetings. He was, well, honestly, quite boring. Uh, but at the same time, I think incredibly important for us to wrestle with. Again, born in 1803 in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, to well-educated Scotch-Irish farmers. He grew up in the Presbyterian church there in uh, Shippensburg. Uh, and it was a, a Presbyterian church that, he says, retained its old world heritage. It hadn't been Americanized in, in any significant way. He described it, um, as somewhat somber and incredibly grave. <laughs> so, uh, not quite the, you know, the festive atmosphere of much of our evangelical churches today. Uh, at the age of 14, he went off to Union College in Schenectady, New York. And he looks at that as a, he said it was an incredibly trying time for him. Now, it was trying in a much different way than uh, a 14-year-old going to IU might find it a trying time. Okay? It was trying to him because it was the first time he was ever exposed to revivalistic and what he termed unchurchly forms of spirituality. He, he had grown up in the church. He had considered himself a Christian his whole life. He felt he had a, a vibrant relationship with God. But now he came under the, the preaching of revivalists who told him all that counted for nothing. And he had to have this somewhat dramatic conversion experience. He actually records that he had such a conversion experience under the preaching of Azahel Nettleton. Uh, by all accounts, one of the most kind of even-handed Calvinistic revival preachers of the Second Great Awakening. He's a pretty responsible guy, not, not overly manipulative. But he looks at that and he says it was still torture, uh, to use his words. Uh, he lived in this kind of conflict between the, the churchly understanding of, of Christianity he had grown up with and this new revivalistic, very subjective and unchurchly kind of spirituality. 
Uh, he left there and he went to Princeton uh, and studied under uh, Charles Hodge. And he looks back at that point as the most kind of beautiful time and productive time uh, in his spiritual life. He was still, though, struggling with these two different uh, understandings of what it meant to live the Christian life, the churchly and the unchurchly. Uh, when Charles Hodge left and went to Germany to do further studies, he actually took over Hodge's classes, uh, wrote his first book, I think probably about the age of 18, on uh, the antiquities of the Old Testament. Um, from there, he, he got ordained in the Presbyterian Church, pastored very, very briefly, before he was called to serve as the president, well, first professor of church history at Western, no, Pittsburgh Western Theological Seminary. doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then from there, called to be president of Mercersburg Theological Seminary. Anyone heard of Mercersburg Theological Seminary? See, he's obscure, right? Uh, most of these institutions don't exist. It was part of the German Reformed Church, which doesn't even exist anymore. It was kind of folded into the United Church of Christ uh, around the turn of the century. Um, in 1844, he was accompanied or joined by Philip Schaff, who probably a lot of us have heard of. Really uh, great church historian. Uh, I have a shelf full of his volumes on the creeds of Christendom and uh, the history of Christianity. Uh, and they were very good for one another. Uh, Nevin was well studied in church history and it shows in some of his later debates, and Schaff kind of fueled that and encouraged that. Um, during his time at Mercersburg, he, he became a lightning rod of controversy. And after serving as the president for about 10 years, he actually stepped down and went into a partial, well, actually, retirement uh, because he was struggling in his faith so much. Uh, during that time, observers, his friends and colleagues, really thought he was about to convert to Catholicism. Nowadays, that doesn't seem like as big a deal as it would have in the 19th century, right? In the 19th century, that was the same as committing apostasy. You know, you were leaving the faith utterly. Uh, but he was on the verge uh, for about 10 years, 1852 to I think it was 1861, during this period of retirement. He comes out of the retirement and back into to full duties at Mercersburg Theological Seminary, and also at Marshall College, where he serves as the president. Nevins is honestly boring. Okay, no one's going to run out and buy his biography and think and burn through it in a day. Uh, you know, he's not in danger of being eaten by cannibals. You know, he's not leading these big revival tent meetings or anything like that. But the form of spirituality that he advocated was churchly and sacramental. And so I think it's good for us to, to at least let him speak into our context, which is very unchurchly and unsacramental, and at least hear what he has to say. Uh, because he was so churchly and sacramental, he was, he was very controversial. Uh, the controversy started pretty early on in, in his ministry, and it centered around two different Charleses. Uh, he, he was in conflict almost from the get-go with Charles Finney or the Finneyites. Uh, I don't know that he actually had personal interaction with Finney, but uh, he didn't like the Finneyites uh, very much at all. 
My son looked at that today and he's like, ooh. <laughs> it does look like it belongs in a Scooby-Doo cartoon, right? The eyes, you know, staring at you wherever you go. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Charles Finney was one of the, the leaders of the Second Great Awakenings. The Second Great Awakenings happened in phases and in different regions. In New England, it was mainly under the leadership of men like Ada Hill Nettleton, uh, in the, the frontier areas of Kentucky, Tennessee, even Indiana. It was more camp meeting under guys like Peter Cartwright. But in Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, Charles Finney and, and the Finneyites uh, were establishing a, a kind of a new brand of Protestantism with their new measures and their revivalistic kind of techniques. And uh, Nevin entered into this controversy really early on. Uh, in 1842, he, he blocked the call of a pastor to the church in Mercersburg, the German Reformed Church. Because when he came to candidate, he actually made use of the anxious bench. He called people forward, sat them on this anxious bench, and, and preached directly to them, calling for their repentance. That was part of Finney's new measures, and Nevin would have no part of it. And so as an influential member of that congregation, you know, the president of the theological seminary in the town, he blocked the call of that uh, would-be pastor. Uh, a year later, he published uh, a book called The Anxious Bench. It's just a, a scathing critique of uh, Finneyite kind of revival methods. It was a... Uh, the book was... That book, The Anxious Bench, was actually fairly well received by his Reformed circles. Most within the Reformed community kind of affirmed what Nevin was saying, though not all. Uh, the New Measures, uh, Finney's revivals started off kind of fairly Reformed, as uh, Dr. Brown mentioned yesterday, kind of in that Reformed vein. But again, pretty early on, the hardcore Reformed were trying to distance themselves from, from Nevin and these New Measures. The second conflict, though, was with Charles Hodge. Um, this put Nevin at odds with the Reformed establishment. Uh, this controversy, this conflict, began with the publication in 1846 of Nevin's The Mystical Presence. Uh, the subtitle of that is A Vindication of the Reformed or Calvinistic Doctrine of the Holy Eucharist. Um, Again, his first book was, was widely accepted by Reformed, by the Reformed circles. This one was not. Uh, this was actually sharply criticized by Hodge. Uh, the book is about 250 pages. You can find it on Google Books and do what I did and print it because I can't read a whole book on a computer screen. But um, it's easy to find. 256 pages. Hodge's critique of it was 51. Okay? Pretty verbose. Nevin's response to Hodge's critique was 125 pages. Uh, so that they had issues, right? I think part of it was Nevin took this pretty personally. Uh, he had kind of been mentored by Hodge, uh, and now Hodge was calling him an unreliable guy in the faith uh, because of his views of, of the sacrament. It's interesting, I think on the merits... Nevin wins both arguments. Uh, again, he was very astute in his reading of church history, uh, more so than Hodge. And Hodge was used to being the smartest guy in the room. Uh, and so this kind of took Hodge off guard quite a bit. But on both, his debate with uh, Finney and the Finneyites and with 
Charles Hodge and his cold uh, forensic Princeton theology, I think he wins the debate. But Finney and the Revivals had momentum and popular sentiment on their side, and Hodge had Princeton, much more influential, influential than Mercersburg, right? Uh, Nevin would say of Mercersburg Theological Seminary that he often had no students, no money, no professors, and it reminded him of the prayer where two or three are gathered in my name. So <laughs> it was small, okay? Uh, and, you know, Hodge was publishing his critiques uh, in the Princeton Theological Journal. Nevin was publishing his in the Mercersburg Theological Review. Much smaller circulation. So though the debate on merits would go to, to Nevin, he, he lost the debate. So, why would I spend so much time talking about Nevin? Why are we going to look at this through his lens? I mean, I just said, right, he's a loser in the debate. History is written by winners. So, why are we spending time looking at boring, loser, uh, controversial, obscure Nevin? Well, partly it's just because I love him. I mean, <laughs> I love boring people. You know, I'm one of them. So, this is good. Uh, but... I think he gives us an important perspective. He, he was writing in the American context. He was aware of the, the shifting sand. Let me try that one again. Shifting sands uh, within American religion, American Protestant Christianity. Uh, and I think that's important. He knew the opportunities. He knew the challenges. He spoke warnings that went really unheeded. And I think we're in some ways reaping uh, the results of that today. Also, he was, he's widely regarded as the best interpreter of Calvin in the 19th century. Now, for some of you, that is a turnoff immediately. Um, but stick with me. Calvin wasn't all bad. Okay? Even if you disagree with his understanding of election, predestination, God's sovereignty, he still believed Jesus Christ was divine. So we can agree with him on that, right? He believed in the Trinity. He's not all bad. And I think his view of the sacrament, it strikes a chord that we need to, to respect at least. Okay, All three of the doctrines that I first introduced, union with Christ, the church, and the sacraments, were incredibly important to Nevin. So I just want to, uh, as we go, look at Nevin and what he's saying on each of those three. Uh, first, union with Christ. What do we mean when we say union with Christ? I'm just going to give you a, a couple uh, texts, because... Uh, the last class I taught, or took, I didn't teach it, that would be cool, but the last class I took at Covenant was a week-long class on union with Christ. So every day, all day, eight hours a day for a week on this. I'm giving you three verses, okay? So uh, the first is from John 14. Uh, Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You get the sense that uh, as believers were incorporated into the, uh, the perichoretical life of the Trinity. We participate in that. We're united with Christ and Christ with us in this, well, mystical, inexplicable kind of way. Uh, another passage uh, from John, John 17. I do not, this is Christ's high priestly prayer. Says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's that, that idea of perichoresis again. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, as, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So you get a lot of this language in John. I, you can see in the Old Testament, too. Not as clearly, but you get a lot of it in John. You get a lot of it in Paul. One of Paul's favorite phrases is, in Christ, or with Christ. Uh, just one example of that comes in Ephesians 1. Uh, this is kind of all disjointed and chopped, because I just wanted to catch some of these, these phrases here. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He chose us in Him, blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. You could also look at Colossians 3, this idea that our life is now hidden with Christ. Uh, you could look at Romans 5, and the, the parallel between being in Adam and now being in Christ. Uh, and this idea of union with Christ kind of runs through Scripture, especially through the, the New Testament. Okay? So what, is, what does Nevin have to say on union with Christ? He says, Christian salvation is a process by which, that's a typo, by which the believer is mystically inserted more and more into the person of Christ till he becomes thus at fully transformed into his image. So, the whole of Christian salvation is in a way summed up in this doctrine of union with Christ. Our justification is because now we're in Christ, clothed with His righteousness. Our sanctification is now uh, because we're in Christ and we're being more and more conformed through this unity with Christ into His image. Our glorification is this in Christ, we, well, we grow in union with Him to the point where we're going to get to this in just a second. You can even say we become partakers of the divine nature. And what does that mean? That's language right out of 2 Peter. Okay? Nevin is pretty specific on what this looks like, what it means, and what it doesn't mean. Uh, he says, Our union with Christ is, is much more profound than simply our shared humanity with Adam. Uh, we're all humans. Christ was a human. Some want to kind of truncate their understanding of, of union with Christ there. And say, we share in Christ because we share in a common humanity. And Evan says, no, it's more profound than that. It's more profound than any kind of union we experience in this life uh, in a natural way. Even more profound than the union between husband and, and wife. And it's also more than simply moral. Um, uh, one theologian has described the kind of theological air that we breathe now as moral therapeutic deism. Uh, that was alive and well in, in Nevin's time as well. And the, uh, some defined union with Christ as our, our transformation so that we more and more act like Jesus. Kind of period in the sentence, that's what union meant. He said that's true of kind of any earthly relationship. Even friends begin to act more like one another and rub off on one another. He says it's more profound than that even. It's more than simply legal. Uh, this is kind of where the conflict with Hodge begins. Uh, Hodge was a federal theologian, a covenant theologian, who was all about you know, the legal 
ramifications of union with Christ, the legal nature. We're in Christ because we're in this new covenant of which he is the, the head, the representative. And Evan says, it is that, uh, but it's more than that. Yes, we're in union with Christ because he's our representative. He, he leads us into this new covenant. But it's also a vital union. It's a living union. It's a, uh, a transformative union. Kind of like marriage. You know, am I legally married to my wife? Yeah, we got the certificate. You know, it was stamped by the, the state and everything. But that's not the sum total of our union. You know, there's, there's a physicalness to the union in, in sexual intercourse. There's a, a spiritual union. There's a, a transformative aspect to the union. She has changed me. I know. Um, and so all those things are also true of our union with Christ. And here's where it really got kind of heated. Our union with Christ is more than with his deity only or with the Holy Spirit. Nevin saw in his day that there was this confusion that when we spoke of uh, Christ being in us, most people assumed what we meant was the Holy Spirit's in us. He said, you can't confuse the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. They're different persons in the Trinity. Uh, And you can't separate the natures of the person of Christ. This is going to be important uh, when we talk about the the sacrament here in in a minute. Uh, You can't say what's true of one nature of Christ isn't true of the person of Christ. Uh, That's a a heresy called Nestorianism that has a a long and storied history in in the church. And and Evan said you you can't divide the person of Christ. You can talk about the different different natures of Christ, the human and the divine, and they're distinct, but you can't ever separate them. They're forever unified in this person of Christ. Of Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's Nevin on, on union. He is just honestly reflecting what was previously in Calvin. Again, he's a very good interpreter of Calvin. Um, it's a little bit lengthy, but uh, just, just read the bold part, I guess. Uh, beginning of that sentence Accordingly, he, Jesus, is called our head, the firstborn among many brethren. While on the other hand, we are said to be engrafted into him and clothed with him. All which he possesses being, as I, as I have said, nothing to us until we have become one with him. Uh, the beginning of that makes it clear that Calvin thinks unless we are united with Christ, none of what Christ has done uh, benefits us in any way. Uh, we can't participate in the the benefits, the blessings of Christ unless we've been united with him in his person. Another kind of long quote, we'll read this the full one. Calvin says, I acknowledge that we are devoid of this incomparable gift, salvation, until Christ becomes ours. Therefore, to that union of the head and members, the residence of Christ in our hearts is fine. The mystical union, we assign the highest rank. Christ, when he becomes our mate, becomes ours, making us partners with him in the gifts with which he is he was endued. Hence, we do not view him as at a distance and without us, or outside us. But as we have put him on, and been engrafted into his body, he deigns to make us one with himself, and therefore we glory in having a fellowship of righteousness with him. 
So if I was going to ask you, what's the core of Calvin's theology, what would you say? Predestination. Okay. Predestination, election, God's sovereignty, maybe God's glory. Uh, I think there's increasing evidence that really union with Christ is at the core of Calvin's theology. Uh, there isn't a separate, separate chapter in the Institutes on Union, but it's found in almost every chapter that he deals with salvation, with uh, Christ in the church, with the sacraments. It's just kind of, it's there uh, in, in almost an assumed way. And Nevin's picking up on that. Is that union conformity? Us conform? Like who's that would be, in that union? I, I mean, is it a pull or a push? Or is it a, a choice? Or is it a, a drawing to? Or, or does he go to that corner? Yeah, for, for Calvin and for Nevin, uh, it's definitely more of a draw. Uh, Christ brings us into himself uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Christ is in heaven, we are here on earth. And it's the Holy Spirit that bridges that infinite distance uh, and unites us increasingly with Christ. It results in a transformation of our character, uh, even our, our nature in a way. But I need to be careful there. Uh, okay. So that's Calvin on union. Uh, how does Calvin and Nevin's understanding of union with Christ as the central truth of salvation lead to a churchly and sacramental spirituality? Um, it does. Stick with me. Uh, these aren't separate silos of theology that are unrelated. They're, if anything, they're stepping stones. You know, Calvin's and Nevin's understanding of union necessarily led them to their understanding of the church and then of, of the sacraments. But stick with me, okay? Uh, a churchly spirituality, what, what does that look like? Well, for Nevin, again, we need to understand Nevin was, I already said this, I need to say it again, writing in a specific context, right? Um, just like Calvin and his theology of cessation of miracles was in a specific context, Nevin's understanding of the church was in a specific context. Again, it was the uh, second great awakenings and the really de-emphasizing of the importance and the role of the church in American Protestantism. For him, and he says, for the church, for Christianity in America at least, the central burning question is the nature of the church. Is the church a dispensable periphery of Christianity or not? You know the answer, right? Nevin, for Nevin, the answer is no. It's not dispensable. No church, no Christianity. This is from... Uh, I guess it would be 12 years after, after the mystical presence of Christ, the book. This is in an article called Thoughts on the Church. Uh, the system, uh, I'm sorry, the church is a mystery. The presence of a supernatural fact in the world, which men are required to acknowledge as a necessary part of the Christian faith. I, I almost assigned this article and a complimentary article by Nevin, um, but the polemic is so heated. <laughs> I don't know if we could have gotten past that. Uh, but it's good. 
he really thinks deeply about the nature of the church, its relationship to the incarnation, its relationship to salvation, uh, and obviously he takes very high views. Nevin saw that in his day there was a kind of war going on between the churchly system that he had been reared in and this unchurchly kind of revivalistic, he often refers to it as a Puritan uh, view of the church um, that was kind of winning the day. Because in almost every denomination we have, if not an open, at least a sort of quiet and silent war going forward between the less churchly and the more churchly. Uh, the causes of that, that war, there's a lot of contributing factors. Uh, you do have you know, the disestablishment of the church in America, which tends to favor low church, more popular forms of, of religion. Uh, you have the democratization of American religion. Uh, you have revivalism being established. Not just revivals, but revivalism is kind of the, the institutionalization uh, of revivals. Revivals are, are wonderful, are great. Nevin wasn't against revivals, but when they become treated as what should be norm, uh, that's revivalism. Uh, so there's lots of things that were contributing to this, this war. The rise of voluntary societies, like you know, all the Bible societies and the mission societies, YMCA, uh, they were having an impact on how people viewed and understood the church, too. It was just becoming, in people's minds, another voluntary institution that they were a part of. Uh, now, he, he says, we so often fight over things like the liturgy, which was a big fight in his denomination, over the sacraments, uh, over you know, um, church government, and, and all those things. He says, those are ancillary to this central question. The central question is the nature of the church, and unless we get that settled, uh, we're never going to agree on, on those others. He says, no other issue within the Christian sphere itself descends so deep or reaches so far. It enters into the very idea of faith, affects the sense of all worship, conditions the universal scheme of theology, and molds and shapes the religious life at every point. Again, it's Pretty big statements. Okay, I'm pretty sure if Bill and Ted went and grabbed Nevin and brought him here in his time machine, he'd say the unchurchly one, and I'm positive at this point he would convert to Roman Catholicism uh, because of the low view that we have of the church. To him, that was just it was frankly unchristian. I'm going to move a little bit more quickly through some of this. Um, Nevin, he bases his arguments for a, a high view of the church, well, frankly, in the history of the church. He says, for the early Christians, the church was more central and more important to them than the Bible itself. That's hard to hear, right? But, when you think about it, the early believers didn't have a Bible. They had fragments, they had letters, they probably couldn't read. They weren't going home and doing their daily devotions. Their spiritual life did center around the church. And that's somewhat reflected in the creeds. Uh, the early creeds have no statement about scripture, but the church is central. And so Nevin looks at the creeds, especially the Apostles' Creed. And he says these articles that we affirm, they don't hang together as um, just kind of random articles 
Uh, they're put together in a coherent way. Father, Son, Spirit, then church, then the benefits of salvation, including forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the dead, life everlasting. Uh, the, the church stands as a, as a bridge between the life of Christ and the life of the believer. So for him it was incredibly important. He says all, all the benefits of Christian salvation are in the view of the creed, fruits of the Spirit, which are to be found only in the church, the home of the Spirit. He goes on and he says, Blot that article about the church out of the creed, and the whole creed is mutilated and broken in its sense. It sounds so foreign uh, to us to talk that way, that the church is, is more important than the Bible. But again, he, he was uh, getting this out of Calvin, uh, he was getting it out of the early creeds. He, he did understand that the Bible calls the church into existence, not the church giving the people the Bible. Um, but still had a very, very high view of the church. Yeah? Yeah. Just to clarify, is, is Kevin talking about the local church, the denominational hierarchy, or the church universal or something? Like I'm going to get there in one second. <clears throat> Great. Yep. Thanks. Yep. He also makes a, a strong, strong statement uh, about the connection between Christ's person and his body, the church. Uh, the members of the actual body are united at the head only by belonging to the body itself. Separated from this, they cease to have any proper existence. And so it is here. We are not Christians, each one by himself and uh, for himself, but we become such through the church. Again, this is pretty strong language. Um, he goes on, he says, you know, a living Christianity necessarily implies the church, which is the body of Christ. It's the organ and medium of his presence in the world. Um, yeah. He terms the church uh, a mystery. A mystery that we have to accept by faith. And here's where we're getting to, to your question. To him, this did mean membership or belonging to the visible local church. He said, we, we, as Protestants, we too often retreat to this idea of the invisible church, the universal church. Um, but again, Nevin would say that's a cop-out. Uh, it means belonging, participating in the local church. Um, he was a champion of the visible church, and he was also a champion of church unity. He said, we are one body. It's an objective fact. We don't subjectively experience it now, but Christ is moving his church more and more in that direction. Now, he wasn't blind, right, to the, the schisms. He wasn't blind to the, the just burgeoning number of, of denominations in his day. He saw that as a temporary thing. Um, the, church, the church was, in fact, united as one body because of its union with Christ. Now what he championed, uh, this is kind of a you know, do as I say and not as I do thing, right? Because his, his polemic against Hodge, against the Finneites, against other uh, wings of the church was pretty heated. So he didn't necessarily contribute to church unity, uh, though he held it in, in high regard. Does that answer your question at least tentatively, Mark? Yeah. Okay. So you can see how there's this bridge between union with Christ, right, and the church. Um, union with Christ, he is our head. We are united with him only through our union with 
the church. Um, it's kind of, he uses the image of body. And he says it's like we're fingers and we're only connected to the head through the body. Uh, we're, we're digits, I think is the actual language he uses. Okay? Now this does, again, spring right from Calvin. The church into whose uh, bosom God is pleased to collect his children, not only that by her aid and ministry they may be nourished so long as they are babes and children, but also may be guided by her maternal care until they grow up into manhood and finally attain to the perfection of faith. What God has joined, let no man put asunder. To those to whom he is father, the church must also be mother. That's Calvin Institute's uh, book four. I feel like I need to let you in on my dirty secret, okay? I'm a Calvinist, I'm, a, I'm reformed, and I still haven't read all of the Institutes. <laughs> How embarrassing is that, right? I've read at least two-thirds of it, so... Uh, and this is one of the sections I've read. Um, he, he goes on in the next section of, of book four there. Uh, By the unity of the church, we must understand a unity into which we feel persuaded that we are truly engrafted. Here's this idea of union again. For unless we are united with all the other members under Christ our head, no hope of the future inheritance awaits us. So you can see the church for Calvin, Nevin, it's, it's indispensable. It's not on the fringe of what it means to be uh, Christian. It's not one of those elements on the salad bar of faith that you can pick up or not. Um, it's central to the church's historic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Okay? So now how do you connect the supper to this? This is Nevin, and this is actually... it's. Tough book to read because it's nineteenth century. It's got a lot of polemic in it. But I would strongly encourage if you have time, it's free Google Books. Wonderful read. Um, he says any theory of the Eucharist will be found to accord closely with the view that is taken at the same time of the nature of the union generally between Christ and His people, you know, the Church. So Nevin, in this his book on the sacraments, uh, on the Lord's Supper specifically says all three of these things are intimately connected. Um, the sacraments belong to the church, uh, and all, all of the, uh, the church and the sacraments are feeding, and, um, well, initiating us, too, into union with Christ. Okay? When we get to the, the sacraments, I think I just need to give maybe a 30-second, two-minute, something like that, tutorial on the main views of, of the Lord's Supper. On this continuum, uh, you have the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the word transubstantiation dates back at least to the 12th century. The, that idea goes back even, even further than that. And it's the notion that the elements, the bread, the wine, become uh, literally the body and the blood of Christ. Though to the senses they still appear as bread and wine, uh, their substance is changed to become uh, the body and the blood of Christ. At the time of the Reformation, Luther uh, objected to that. He, he called it you know, superstitious. Um, you know, Luther had a way with words, right? He didn't mince them often. Um, and he began to articulate a doctrine that's come to be known as consubstantiation, I didn't know this until recently, but Lutherans kind of skew that, that term. Um, but it's the idea that the elements don't become the, the body and the blood of Christ, 
But the body and the blood of Christ are over, under, in, and with, I think, or surrounding um, the elements. So the body and the blood of Christ are literally, truly present, though the bread doesn't transform and become the body. On, on the opposite pole, you have the Swiss reformer Zwingli, um, and his view, he just didn't think Luther had gone far enough. He was still holding on too much to his, his uh, Catholic heritage, uh, and he hadn't reformed enough. For Zwingli, Christ is not present in any real way. Um, the, the purpose of communion isn't to receive from God, but to remember and to pledge your allegiance anew uh, to God. Uh, because of you know, the, the sacrifice he's made. So it's often referred to as a, a memorialism or commemorative view of the sacraments. Uh, in 1529, Luther and Zwingli met in Marburg to kind of hammer out their differences. Uh, this was becoming a, an issue. You know, they had this new Reformation movement, and now the Reformation movement was starting to splinter. Uh, and so they met in Marburg, 1529, and they had 15 talking points. They agreed on 14. The one they couldn't come to agreement on was the phrase, this is my body, and what that meant. Uh, for Swingley, it was just a metaphor. Uh, for Luther, it was something much more significant. Again, Luther thought, uh, Zwingli thought Luther just wasn't reforming enough Luther thought Zwingli wasn't taking the sacraments seriously enough. Uh, Alistair McGrath calls this one of the tragic moments you know, in Protestant uh, history. Because a movement that could have been unified is now, what, 12 years after its inception, now splintered. Um, uh, about a decade after that, uh, that meeting... Calvin begins the publishing of his Institutes. I think the first edition was 1539. You've read it like 20 times, right, Dave? Is that about right? Okay. I think it's 1539. It went through multiple, multiple revisions. It got longer every time. Um, but his view is somewhere in the middle. I've heard some refer to it as supra-substantiation. Uh, he didn't use that word. Uh, but you got to attach a label to it, right? So, uh, supra-substantiation. He didn't believe that Luther gave enough credit, enough weight to the actual ascension of Christ. For Luther, Christ was physically, locally, corporally present in the sacraments. And Calvin said, how is that possible if Christ is physically, locally in heaven? But at the same time, he was not with Zwingli. This wasn't just a commemoration of Christ's death. It's often portrayed that, that Calvin just kind of found a middle ground. I, I don't think it was that at all. Calvin is, he's kissing Luther. I mean, they're so close in what they're actually saying. And, and he's really distant from Zwingli. Uh, what's interesting is different views are going to have Radically, radical implications for how you approach the sacraments. Uh, for the Zwinglian and for the Roman Catholic, the sacrament is about what you do. For the Roman Catholic, it's about offering sacrifice uh, at the Mass. For the Zwinglian, it's about this pledge of allegiance. For Luther and for, for Calvin, it was about what you receive. 
It was much more about coming in and getting from God and not performing a, a duty for God. I hate to ask, but I'm going to. Questions about that? Okay, good. What got Nevin in the hot water that he was in with Hodge was he said the Protestant church, the Reformed church, at least in America, is committing apostasy. I mean, that's the language, right? It's polemic, it's harsh. Committing apostasy from the true Calvinistic Reformed understanding of the sacraments and has moved to this Zwinglian uh, memorial view. What did Nevin and Calvin teach on the supper? I gotta check my time here. Hold on one second. Uh, Nevin taught that the supper is a sacrament. It's a sacrament, it's a sign and a seal. In a sacrament, there's this union, this idea of union again, between the symbol, the sign, and what it signifies. They, Calvin and Nevin and others use very Christological language uh, to describe the sacrament. As in Christ, there's this union between the divine and human natures. They're distinct, but they can't be separated. Uh, in the Reformed understanding of the sacraments, there's a union between the sign and the thing it signifies. You can distinguish them, but you can never separate them. So this is from the mystical presence. Uh, the signs are bound to what they re represent. Not subjectively, not just in our mind, not just in our, our sentiments, uh, not simply in the thought of the worshiper, but objectively by the force of a divine appointment. The signs are also seals, not simply as they attest the truth and reality of the grace in a general way, that Christ died, that Christ gave himself for us, but as the... Uh, and they authenticate also its presence under the sacramental exhibition itself. Uh, so they, they sign, and they're signing the seal. And the supper uh, especially signifies our union with Christ, our participation with him and his, his body and his blood. He goes on, uh, what the supper signifies, it, it also provides. So this is actually from Calvin. I just want you to see, Nevin is getting his stuff from Calvin. Okay? His charge that Hodge was moving away from Calvin was really accurate. Calvin says, Our Lord therefore instituted the supper first in order to not, not sing, should be sign, uh, sign and seal our consciences of the, the promises contained Man, there's a lot of typos. In his gospel concerning our being made partakers of his body and blood. And to give us certainty and assurance that therein lies our true spiritual nourishment. And that having such an earnest, we may entertain a right reliance on salvation. Okay? So he's charging Hodge with moving away from that to this strict memorial kind of view of the sacrament. And he goes even further. Um, for Nevin, to say that we receive Christ in the sacraments uh, and then his benefits means we receive Christ, his whole person. 
Not just that we commune and participate with, with his divine nature, but that we participate and receive his, his body, his human nature as well. When we talk about receiving Christ, we mean that we receive the whole Christ, not just his deity, but his humanity also. Now on this, Calvin and Luther, they, they agreed. It was just for them a, a debate on how that happens. So there's some clarification on what for Nevin and for Calvin this means. It means we partake of the flesh and the blood of Christ, not just remember the flesh and the blood of Christ given for us. It's a real spiritual participation. Those words are important. A real and spiritual. Nevin says it's not real simply, but real and spiritual. It is not spiritual simply, but spiritual and real. Uh, to him, real doesn't mean um, that the flesh of Christ is locally present, uh, that it's uh, in any kind of corporal way, but it's true. We are truly participating in a spiritual way in the body and the blood of Christ. Um, I think this is this idea of spiritual being combined with real is important because uh, I think it was Matt who said mysticism is right. Matt Newsbaum, mysticism is the invisible world treating it as though it's real. I think our our natural default is if I said, we really eat the flesh and blood of Christ, you'd be like, do you mean spiritually? And I said, yes. And you'd be like, okay, well, as though spiritual means less than real. Uh, and, and for Nevin, for Calvin, that's not true at all. Spiritual is just as real as physical. I think we only kind of betray our materialistic bent uh, if we think otherwise. So it's real and it's spiritual. Uh, he says communion is spiritual, not material. It is participation in the Savior's life. Of his life, however, as a human, subsisting in a true bodily form. The living energy is made to flow over into the communicant, making him more and more one with Christ himself, and thus more and more an heir to the same immortality that is brought to light in his person. So as we, we partake we receive the life of Christ in his humanity, and we become more and more united to him, not only in his deity, his divinity, but his humanity as well. So we feed through not our mouths, but the organ of faith. As the body is nourished by bread and wine, so our souls nourish as it feeds upon Christ. And again, Hodge, I just couldn't stand for this. Um, for Hodge... Christ was present in his efficacy and his virtue only. Um, one commentator summarizes Hodge. For Hodge, it was nothing more than a mental exercise of remembrance and reflection that may be used by the Spirit from time to time uh, to deepen the recipient's faith and commitment. So you can see how, how far apart Hodge and, and Nevin are on this. Okay, this is Calvin. Again, I just want you to see Nevin is interpreting and applying Calvin. Uh, all the benefit which we should seek in the supper is annihilated if Jesus Christ not be there given to us as the substance and foundation of all. 
to deny that a true communication with Jesus Christ is present to us in the supper is to render the holy sacrament frivolous and useless. That's from his short treatise, which is short. It's only like 30 pages on the, the Holy Supper. A few more. I think I have just those four more points uh, to kind of clarify what Nevin is doing. Uh, for, for Nevin's, the, the participation in Christ's body is it's objective, not merely subjective. It's not just remembering. It's not just... In fact... Even those who partake in an unworthy manner, who partake without faith, receive Christ. But they don't do it to their benefit. They do it to their condemnation. For Nevin, it was the high point of Christian worship. Uh, the Puritan view, as he calls it, Hodge's view, was that it was just another way to communicate with Christ. No, no better, no worse than, than hearing preaching. No better, no worse than uh, you know, singing hymns or the psalms. Uh, point E, we communion. I think that should probably be we commune with Christ. I, I really need an editor. Right? You guys who read the flyer know that, right? I had the time wrong, so I need an editor. Any volunteers are welcome. Uh, we commune with Christ in a more profound way and suffer than in any other aspect of Christian worship. That's just kind of reiterating point D. And the last one, uh, for Nevin, uh, this was a miracle and a mystery. Um, he charges that Hodge is basically sold out to the Enlightenment, to rationalism. He said there's no mystery in, in your understanding of the sacrament. There's no, there's no miracle here. And, and Hodge was right. He said, no, this isn't a miraculous thing. This is, uh, this is something we do to commemorate, to remember. And the Holy Spirit can use that subjectively to influence us. <coughs> Uh, but there's no real miracle that happens. Again, Nevin is really reflecting Calvin here. Uh, in Calvin's short treatise, you get this, this sense that he's having a mystical experience in the sacraments that he can't articulate either. He, he knows there's this real participation with the body and the blood of Christ happening. He believes it. And yet, at one point, he just you kind of sense he's throwing up his hands, and he says, you know what, I'd rather experience it than truly understand it. Because um, it's a mystery, it's a miracle that's happening. I'm going to open up for questions in about one minute. I kind of want to do some rubber meets the road stuff, putting it all together. I think a churchly spirituality understands and accepts the central role of the church in the spiritual life of the believer. I think if we just got that point, that would be a paradigm shift for you know, a lot of evangelical Christians where participation in the church is viewed as a voluntary activity. Um, I might choose my small group over church. I might choose a parachurch group over church. Um, but I think Nevin, I think Calvin are, are right. If the church is truly the body of Christ in a real way, uh, then it should be central to the, the spiritual life of the believer. Second point is sacramental spirituality understands and accepts the sacraments as gifts from God meant to sustain us and grow us in our union with Christ. If our union with Christ is the, the central aspect of our salvation, how do we grow in that union? 
Is Bible reading important? No, of course. That helps us to understand the mind of Christ. Is prayer important? Obviously. Uh, but it's through the sacraments that this, this union is sustained and deepened. Uh, the third, uh, I won't comment too much on it. A church's sacramental spirituality is personal but not private. Obviously, it involves us as people, as individuals, but we're engrafted into this larger body called uh, the church. Uh, spiritual health requires regularly partaking of spiritual food. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. Calvin, he had some say what happened in, in his church, but he didn't have the final say. Uh, he would have liked to have seen uh, the sacrament uh, observed weekly. Actually, he says at least weekly. Um, uh, I don't know if it was the large council or the small council uh, would not allow that. So it was a monthly observance there. And he had to just kind of you know, bite his tongue and go with it. But we need regular partaking of spiritual food. If Christ is what sustains us, our souls, if he's the nourishment of our soul, and if the, uh, the supper is how we feed on Christ, uh, then it's bizarre to think that we would grow if we're not eating. Um, again, I grew up in that fundamentalist Baptist church where we observed communion quarterly. Uh, my uncle passes a church where they do it once a year. They do it on Easter. I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but uh, he didn't ask me either. So, uh, last point, the church's sacramental spirituality moors us to our history and stabilizes us amidst the turbulence of modern religiosity. Uh, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of um, movements that, that, that come and go. Um, if you've been around long enough, you, you've seen the trends, you've seen the fads. But this churchly sacramental spirituality kind of keeps us anchored and, and stable in the midst of it. And, like saying that's my story and I'm sticking to it. But uh, to contrast the, the first kind of story I told about, um, you know, a Baptist church and kind of the low view of the sacraments. I remember the first time I was really overwhelmed with the power uh, and the mystery of the sacraments. I was the, the student body chaplain at Houghton College. And as one of my responsibilities, I had to help the, um, what was he called? Dean Lewis, the Dean of Spiritual Life, uh, serve communion to the whole student body. I remember just standing there holding the cup and saying, this is the blood of Christ. And, and being overwhelmed uh, with, again, the power and the mystery uh, of what was happening uh, in that moment. Any questions? I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> I went really quick. I'm sorry. Questions on Nevin, Calvin? Sure, Stephen. So, I, I, I'm still trying to formulate this question in my mind all try to formulate it out loud quickly. Um, <coughs> as I understand it, in, in church history, a lot of times in places where there's a very high view of the church, for uh, instance, in the, the early church and, and among the, the um, uh, early New England church, Puritans and all that, um, there was often a, uh, a hesitation to become a member of the church, a full member, because sure. that was a big step, a big commitment. 
Uh, and like in, in the in the some thinkers of the early church, there was concern that well, what if I sin after I have joined the church? And, um, so, so I just wonder with with Nevin's um, uh, and Calvin's uh, emphasis on membership or or participation in the local church, high church view. How how do those two things go together? Given that. Um, does Nevin specifically say membership, or is there some other form of participation that he has in mind? Or yeah, he uses the word membership. I don't think he necessarily means it as we mean it. Okay. Um, I don't. I gotta be honest. I don't know. I don't know enough about the context of the German Reformed Church to understand what membership would have entailed. Um, yeah, but you're right. I mean, in the New England, there was the you know the halfway covenant and the controversy over you know, who can participate in communion. Is it those who grew up and have been baptized in the church? Is it those who have, can give a credible account of their conversion? And that was kind of a debate between Edwards and his father-in-law. And so, but yeah, I, I got to be honest, I don't know enough about the German Reformed Church to understand what Nevin meant when he said membership. Yeah, Matt. Can I just ask? clarify a little bit that last point on there because it seems to me like a lot of what Nevin is doing is actually using a sort of religiosity <coughs> as a form of stabilizing us against the turbulence of modern spirituality. That's how I would that's how I was thinking okay. that this would be frank, right? It seems like Nevin is sort of defending the religious against the spiritual and against the sort of vagaries of, of what I think of the spirituality is, I mean, can you explain a little bit more about how you, what you mean there is the distinction between the spiritual and the religious? I think so. Nevin wasn't at all against piety, uh, against forms of kind of more personal or individualistic spirituality, as long as they were supplemented with this kind of more religious uh, formal, he would say objective, that's the word he keeps coming back to, objective and historical roots. So that, uh, again, untied from that, untethered from the church, the creeds, he would actually go the liturgy, the sacraments, then you're just on this wave of subjectiveness, um, that the objective reality of the church uh, kind of helps you not capsize. I'm taking that nautical you know, as far as I can. <laughs> yeah. They use that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Roughly the same, yes. Yeah, subjective is um, for him it, it's what happens in the conscience, what happens in uh, your thoughts, your feelings. Um, objective is what's happened historically. Uh, what is uh, uh, it's real yeah real it's true because uh, he wouldn't say that you can see touch and feel Christ in the sacraments because Christ is in heaven you're here on earth so Christ doesn't come here locally um, but you through the power of the spirit are taken to heaven to feast on Christ there but it's not just subjective. That it's not just happening in your memory and your conscience. It's truly, really happening. 
through the power of the Spirit. Yeah, Candy. Could you comment on um, interpretations of 1 Corinthians 11, 29, and 30, uh, which is, uh, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Yeah, that really kind of fosters his very objective view of the sacrament, that if you partake even in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of sinning because you're receiving the body of Christ in an unworthy manner. My focus here uh, uh-huh. is, is on the dis- what it means to discern the body. What oh, okay. Th- that, that's kind of where I'm going with that. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't read a commentary on, by Nevin on that. Okay. Um, I know that some have said it's the body in the sacrament. Some have argued that it's the body as the, the body of Christ, the church. Mm-hmm. I don't that's know. that's not a big part of these conversations. No, 1 kind of Corinthians 10 is much more important mm-hmm. uh, in that. And the... Uh, um, uh, I had the verse right here a second ago. Uh, you're truly made to participate uh, in the one cup and the blood and the one bread and the, the body of Christ. That's much more important for Calvin and for Nevin than is the First Corinthians 11 passage. Yeah, Sarah. Sacraments 
um, as something miraculous. And it, yes, there is a subjective element to it. You do f- feel this union with Christ. You do experience it. But it's based on the objective. It's not solely subjective. Which was the Zwingliian view. Zwingliian view is nothing truly happens. It's just remembrance. So uh, could you apply Candy's four tests to it and find out if, if there's anything really happening? <laughs> Do you think? Maybe that's your next the mystery, though, right? I yeah. mean, that, that, um, I think sometimes we, especially as Protestants, when we think, for instance, about, okay, well, and I mean, I'm a historian of Christianity, think about the real presence, and I think about people who collapsed before the altar, right? And who have crazy things happen when they receive the Eucharist, but 99.99999% of the time, people walk up. They get the host, they walk back, and they sit down, and absolutely nothing happens. But the doctrine that the entire church is holding is that this is, in fact, the real body and blood of Christ. And you're not advocating that same, you're not advocating transubstantiation. Right. But there is that mystery of somehow this is absolutely real, and somehow I feel absolutely normal. You know, I walk yeah. up, I took bread, I sat down. Would I change? Can I measure that? I, mean, I think that's, that's part of the mystery. And there is, for Calvin and for Nevin, a destination. You're growing more and more in union with Christ to the point where Calvin doesn't shy away from using words like deification, um, like becoming gods. Um, he qualifies it. He says, you know, we become God, but we don't become a creator. He's a, there's always a distinction. Again, he uses Christological language. We're so united that we can't be separated. Uh, we partake of the divine nature, Second Peter 1.14, I think. Um, and yet we remain creatures. We remain who we are as individuals. But so that, that's the, the destination and the, the sacraments are, are bringing us more and more progressively towards that. It won't be completed until the, uh, you know, our final glorification. But Okay? I'm going to wrap this up and say thank you for enduring boring Nevin and boring me. Um, but I would, there is a reading list. Um, the mystical presence is not boring. Uh, I think it's incredibly encouraging. Uh, his biography is boring. Um, but uh, I would encourage you to, again, find some of his articles, uh, look them up, read them. And we'll take a 10-minute break, and then we'll have the three of us, uh, me and Dr. Brown and, and Carolyn, and we're going to try and think through with you guys how we kind of dovetail uh, some of these different approaches uh, I don't think they should be silos that stand on their own either. So take a 10-minute break, maybe 15, and we'll, we'll be back in a couple.